Well, we are looking at the Lord's Prayer. It's found in Matthew chapter 6, and Bill has some Bibles in the back. If you just raise your hand, he'll bring one to you. So if you need a Bible, we'd like you to be able to read it yourself. And uh, in fact, if you want, you can keep one of these, but uh, just raise your hand. Matthew 6, please turn there with me. And uh, we are in this prayer that we just heard from our uh, children's ministry. And uh, this was, Jesus gave this prayer in response to his disciples saying, Lord, teach us to pray. And uh, today we come to the part of the prayer that deals with the will of God. See, you have a will for your life, and God has a will for your life and for this whole world. And what happens when those two wills are not headed in the same direction? Well, we're going to first look at this part of the Lord's Prayer, what it means, and then some of the affirmations that uh, come out of it uh, when we pray this. And what does it mean when we're, we're praying this prayer? Because what we're saying really in advance when we say, your kingdom come, your will be done, we're saying in advance, God, whatever you want in my life, the answer is yes, whatever you bring, because you're the Lord and you are in charge. So... He says, your kingdom come. What is the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God? Matthew uses the phrase 32 times, the kingdom of heaven. So he's using it as a synonym for the kingdom of God. But, um, uh, you know, God's kingdom and God's will are really, really are talking about the same thing, just from two slightly different uh, perspectives. I mean, we don't use the word kingdom very much these days. When we do, we're usually talking about a place, like the kingdom of Nepal or the United Kingdom. Or the magic kingdom. I mean, in each of these cases, a kingdom is a specific geographical place defined by its borders. And uh, the way we use the word in English, the word kingdom, every kingdom has an address. Because in English, it primarily refers to a place. But the Greek word for kingdom in the Bible puts the emphasis on the rule or the reign of the king rather than on the realm of the king, uh, where, where the king exercises uh, his reign. In fact, some Bible translations use the Greek, uh, from this Greek phrase, translated the kingdom of God. They translate it as the reign of God or the rule of God to bring out this idea I'm talking about. Matthew uses this term, kingdom of heaven, a lot. And, and, and he's pointing us to God as doing something, of actively ruling, not just a geography where he's the sovereign. And uh, so the kingdom of heaven is, is something that happens. It's not just a place. There's a future aspect to this kingdom, and there's a present day aspect uh, to, to this kingdom. And uh, what it's praying is that for the time, it's praying for that day and time when all evil is gone. And when people in this world will gladly submit themselves to Jesus Christ as King of Kings and Lord of Lords. So. You know, you can know this if you go in the Bible. Anybody ever get a book and you, it's such a good book, you wonder, how does this end? So you go to the end, you know, you jump, right? So you can do that in your Bible. If you go to the Revelation, the last book in the Bible, Revelation eleven fifteen says this. Then the seventh angel blew his trumpet and there was loud voices in heaven saying, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ and he shall reign forever and ever. So, amen. Praise God. So, we know how it ends. So that way you can position your life based on not on the ups and downs of, of day to day, but where is this going to end? And where do I want to be at the end? And so this prayer begs God to take action. 
God's kingdom is God's saving reign over all his creation. And the kingdom of God is going to be established in this world by God, not by us. I mean, we can take part of his kingdom and help bring it to full flower on, on this earth. But the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God is closely associated with the person and the work of Jesus himself. It's never once mentioned in the Old Testament of the kingdom of heaven. That comes in with Jesus. When he, Jesus shows up, he starts talking about God's kingdom or God's reign. In fact, his very first sermon recorded in Matthew chapter 4, he says, repent for the kingdom of heaven is near. So he taught stories called parables designed to illustrate what God's kingdom was like. And the Bible calls the Christian message about Jesus' death and resurrection, it's called the gospel of the kingdom. So Jesus believed and taught that through his life and death, God's reign had descended on this earth, that somehow his death and resurrection opened the door of God's kingdom for people like us. And he also taught that God's kingdom wouldn't come with power and authority until his second coming at the end of the age. So you gotta, it's kind of in stages here. You, you might picture God's kingdom this way. In Jesus' first coming, he established God's kingdom in this world. He got it started. And he opened the doors to God's kingdom. He invited people to come through those doors by trusting in the death and resurrection of Jesus. And he warned us that unless you're born again by faith, you can't come through those doors. So God's kingdom reign is established in some way through Jesus' first coming. And as God's future kingdom reigns, somehow it's invaded the present that we live in, the present tense. Yet it's only when Jesus comes again that God's kingdom reign will be consummated in power. Only then will God's reign be established on earth as it is in heaven, in the ultimate sense of abolishing evil and vindicating good. Only then will there be an ultimate sense of accountability be brought to all people as every human being stands before their creator, the creator of the universe, God, and gives an account for their life. And in between the first coming and the second coming of Christ is the church age. And that's what we live in now. And the disciples who got helped get it started when the church was born at Pentecost probably had no idea that 2,000 years later that we would still be looking forward to and anticipating the eminent return of Christ. And so that's where we are as we're living in that, that uh, time of the church age. And it's a time of tension between the establishment of God's kingdom and the consummation of God's kingdom. I mean, it's a time of tension because it's already and not yet at the same time. I mean, through Jesus and his sacrifice on the cross, our sins are already forgiven. Although the not, because of the not yet, we still struggle with the power of sin in our lives, don't we? And, and trying to live without falling into sin and failing. And through Jesus, our salvation is already guaranteed. And we're promised complete healing and restoration when Christ comes again. But because of the not yet, our bodies still get sick and we still struggle with things like doubt or fear. And already the power of evil and darkness have been defeated by Jesus through his death and resurrection. He broke the back of evil and death. But because of the not yet, there's still evil and darkness in this world. So when we pray, your kingdom come, we're not asking about the already part. We're looking forward to the not yet part. So how do God's kingdom and God's will overlap? Our Father in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, your will be done. 
God's kingdom and God's will look at the same reality from two separate perspectives. I mean, think of God's kingdom as the big picture perspective. It's like you're looking through a telescope at all of the galaxies that are out there. God's kingdom is God's saving reign over all of his creation. So the phrase God's kingdom looks at the whole picture, at the entire universe from the perspective of Christ's work being applied and God's plan is fulfilled. Now think of God's will as the same thing from a smaller perspective, like you're looking through a microscope. That God's will is God's saving reign in a specific circumstance of life. So that God's will is God's kingdom applied to a particular circumstance or situation, like a relationship or like an individual person or to a particular church or a community. Essentially, the phrase God's kingdom and God's will refer to the, to the same reality, just from slightly different angles. Now, as followers of Jesus, we are called to live under God's reign even though the kingdom hasn't arrived on earth in full force. We who are fully devoted followers of Jesus Christ are trying to live our lives by the values of God's reign, even though we live in what you, occupied territory. We live here. Now, I'm, I'm told that in the country of Laos many years ago, the kings of Laos and Vietnam reached an agreement on how to distinguish which residents were under Laotian government and which residents were under the Vietnamese government. Those who ate short-grained rice and built their houses on stilts and decorated their homes with Indian-style serpents were considered Laotian. And those who ate long-grained rice and built their houses on the ground and decorated their homes with Chinese-style dragons were considered Vietnamese. They lived mixed in with each other, but their kingdom allegiance was determined by the values and culture they embraced. Now, in a similar way, as followers of Christ, our ultimate allegiance is to God's reign. We seek to live by kingdom values in our world today. So even though we live as Americans and we seek to be good, responsible citizens of our nation, our ultimate loyalty is to God's reign as our king. So we saw some of this firsthand when we went to Nepal and India last October because here you and I have sent money, we have prayed, we have sent evangelists, we have had the Jesus film translated into their language, we have been telling them the story of Jesus and inviting them to convert to Christianity. It's against the law to convert to Christianity in those places. It's punishable by six-year prison sentence if you're baptized. We gathered with over 100 of the 500 people who have professed to follow Christ. So here they live in a place that says, here are our values, and they're going directly against that by following Christ. And sometimes we will be called on to do the same, to say, I live as an American, but I live under the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven. And so there's times if that's in conflict, which one are you going to follow? Well, you look at some of the fine print here in what Jesus is saying, some of the affirmations that we make when we pray, your kingdom come, your will be done. It's good to know what we're really saying. So what are we praying when we say this prayer? Well, we are submitting our will to God's will, just like Jesus did. We begin by thinking about the life of Jesus. And remember, the Lord's prayer emerged out of Jesus' own prayer life. And on the last night before Jesus died... He had ate dinner with his disciples, 
And then he took them to the Garden of Gethsemane, which is just outside of Jerusalem, and he was going to spend time there in prayer. I think he went there a lot. It was kind of one of the known places that he would go. I mean, think about it. If you were separated from somebody you loved and you didn't have access through cell phone to find them, you'd have to go looking for them. So you would go to the places that you say, this is most likely they're going to show up here. Judas, the disciple who betrayed Jesus, went and got some thugs and they went to look for Jesus and they didn't start where he had dinner. They came to the Garden of Gethsemane as the first place to go look for Jesus late at night and uh, because he expected they would find Jesus there. And he was right. Jesus had gone to this private garden to pray and to wait for his betrayer. He could have run away. He knew what was coming. And he, he, it didn't surprise him that they showed up. And so he could have escaped this, but he didn't. He waited, and he spent an agonizing night in prayer, and he asked his three closest friends to watch and to pray with him. But they were exhausted from a busy day. And they had eaten uh, a large dinner, and they couldn't stay awake. And so Jesus went and prayed. He came in so intense. It was like he said, sweat drops of blood. And he's praying, Father, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. And then he came back, and he found out his buddies were asleep. So he wakes them up and says, hey, can't you pray with me one hour? They go, oh, sorry, sorry, sorry. And they sit up and... And, and, you know, then he goes back to pray, and then they, dro uh, they drop off again to sleep. And he comes back again, and he wakes them up. Come on, I need your support and prayer. And what you have here in this prayer is a conflict between Jesus' human will and God the Father's will. Jesus knows what's ahead. He says, Father, if this cup could pass from me. He knows about the suffering. He knows about the pain, the isolation from his friends and from God. And you see, Jesus' death isn't merely the death of a martyr who's dying for a cause. The death Jesus is about to die is a unique kind of death, a death where he dies as our substitute, that he, this perfect person, was taking on himself all of the consequences for our failures, all the sin of the world. I mean, the cup he speaks of drinking from is the cup of God's wrath which is a common picture in the Old Testament because Jesus knows he's about to experience the judgment of God because of the sinfulness of all humanity. And that's why he's going to die as the sacrifice. So Jesus knows he's about to be forsaken by his friends and his family. He's about to undergo terrible physical suffering at the hands of professional Roman executioners. And he knows that he's about to be totally alienated from God, which I don't think he realized the full sting of that until it actually happened. And then it just kind of burst out of him on the cross where he said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And the answer was sin, yours and mine, where God actually abandoned his own son, looked away from him. That was the first time that God's communication with Jesus was ever broken. So he cries out to the Father here in the garden, sees this coming. He says, is there some other way, some other method that this could be accomplished, some way to restore the human race, but... There is no other way, or you know God would have chosen it. Jesus concludes in his prayer, but not as I will, but as you will. Had the same conversation with God three times, expressing his agony, and each time concluding with his surrender of his will to the Father's will. And so really he was praying the prayer we're talking about today. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Even though following the will of God had a tremendous, huge personal cost 
to Jesus. So when we pray for God's kingdom reign to come, we're affirming our desire to follow Jesus' example of submitting our will to the will of the Father. Now, none of us is ever going to face the kind of situation that Jesus faced because his suffering and death was a once-for-all action that forever threw open the doors of forgiveness and restoration with God. But even though Jesus' suffering and death is a once-for-all, unrepeatable event, the pattern of his life that he demonstrated on his journey to the cross is lifted up in the Bible as an example for us Christians to say, God, what do you want with my life? The answer is yes. Do whatever you want. Your will is the way we're going to go. And so if there is a conflict between my will and God's will as a fully devoted follower of Christ, I abandon my own will and my own wishes and say, God, let's do it your way. And that's what, according to the Bible, a Christian is a follower of Jesus. Somebody who trusts in the significance of Jesus' death and resurrection. Somebody who follows Jesus in the journey of life. In fact, Jesus said, if anybody's going to follow me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. To deny yourself, take up your cross daily, and to follow me. That uh, particular saying of Jesus is recorded in the Bible six times. So if you were getting ready for a midterm or a final exam, you would know that that would be on the test because the teacher has repeated it so many times. He said it over and over. He wants you to know if you're going to follow me, you deny yourself. That's give up your will, take up your cross, which it wasn't uh, jewelry, it wasn't decoration. A cross was an instrument of death. The person was nailed to the cross. They've exercised all their options. They're faced in one direction, and they're going to die a slow, painful death. Jesus says, take up your cross and follow me. So why would you do that? Because of the joy on the other side. Because it's the only way to achieve true life. There is no shortcut. That Jesus gave his life for us, and he invites us to live our lives for him and 1 John 2, 6 tells us, whoever wants to be a Christian must walk as Jesus walked. And part of his journey to the cross was this cry, not as I will, but as you will. So when we pray, when you pray or I pray, your kingdom come, your will be done, we're saying the same thing to God that Jesus said to God when he was praying in the garden. We're following Christ's example by abandoning our own lives to the will of our Father. We're saying, my life is not my own. I belong to the heavenly Father who loves me. And I already told him in advance, we're going to do things your way. I mean, this is a radical prayer. Don't pray it if you don't mean it. Because it gives full control of your life to God and none to the, the, person, the person who's praying. I mean, what if he asks you to go be a missionary? What if he directs you to be the next Mother Teresa of Calcutta and, and live among the poor, us of the poor? I mean, why do we think that when we say, I'm going to give my life to God, that he's going to make it hell on earth? We do, don't we? We kind of fear that of, oh my goodness, if I give myself to God, well then I'm, I'm really going to suffer rather than saying, this is my heavenly Father who absolutely loves me and I will live the, the fullest, most rewarding, most fulfilling life by living the plan that he designed for me to live. So this is a radical prayer. And Jesus may not lead you to take a vow of poverty and live among the poor, but he might lead you to live in such a way that the people around you are watching you, they don't understand. You know, co-workers will struggle to understand why, why a Christian doesn't cut the corners or take the shortcuts that everybody else does because nobody will ever know. 
Or friends will understand, struggle to understand why we raise our kids the way we do and then have them in church and the listening to the message of Christ and, and uh, memorizing verses and singing songs and doing prayers at home. Or, or why we choose to invest so much money into God's kingdom rather than spending it on pleasure or on security for ourselves. I mean, it's because as followers of Jesus, our lives are not our own. And so we pray like the, the Savior did, not as I will, but as you will. This isn't the only affirmation. I mean, we can be absolutely sure we get what we want from God when we pray according to the will of God. God's attuned to the prayers of his children. He loves to give you the desires of your heart. He's so pleased when your desires have been aligned with his will. I mean, when we pray for God's kingdom to reign and, and, and to come in our hearts, we are affirming our trust in God to answer our requests appropriately. I mean, think about it. when you pray to God and you ask him, he could say yes. He could say no. A lot of times he says not now or wait. But every request is answered. So we come to him for somebody who's struggling with a disease. Yes, no, or or uh, not right now. And when we pray, or, you know, a job promotion, or an escrow to close, or, or something, and, and we're just basically saying, when we pray, your kingdom come, your will be done, we're saying, God, uh, this is what I want, this is what I think should be right in this situation, but I trust you and I believe you see it far more clearly than I do, and if it's different than that, please direct it the way that you think it should go, and I will follow you. I mean, have you, ever, have you ever prayed, oh, dear God, please, please, please? And then later you pray, dear God, you know, you didn't answer that prayer. Why didn't you give me exactly what I asked for? And then still later you pray, oh, dear God, thank you. Thank you for not giving me that. Anybody? Huh? Any, not, didn't give me that relationship or that Corvette or that job or, you know, something that we just thought we really had to have. God knows best. And when we think our prayer is unanswered, maybe it was answered with a no or it was answered with a not yet. And we just need to trust. See, there are some promises in the Bible that seem to guarantee that God will give us exactly what we want if we just pray hard enough and with enough faith and we pray long enough. For example, Jesus said, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it and it will be yours. We read these promises, we also need to remember God only grants the requests if they're according to his will. And after all, Jesus asked God the Father about his suffering and says, please, can't I avoid this? Can you find some other way? And he was asking in faith because Jesus was a great man of faith and, and God didn't grant that request because his suffering was necessary. It was an important and, and significant part of God's plan to satisfy the price of sin. So other people have struggled with the issue of whether our requests to God really make a difference with what God does. I mean, after all, if God already has a plan, what's the point of me asking God to heal somebody or provide uh, for a need or whatever? Hasn't God already decided what he's going to do? Is it all decided in advance? So what's the point of even asking? Some have proposed that the only purpose of prayer is to align our will with God's will, not to ask God to intervene. But the Bible clearly teaches that God is listening, and, and our prayers do influence the outcome of events. 
Now, I don't exactly understand how God's plan and our prayers fit together. Maybe in eternity past, God decided upon his will, and in his foreknowledge, he knew what we would ask him to do in this situation, and he took our request into consideration. Or regardless of how we deal with this mystery, the fact remains when we pray for God's kingdom reign, we are affirming that we trust God to answer appropriately according to his will. And we know that our prayers do make a difference to God. There's one more affirmation that we want to make as we look at this part of the Lord's Prayer. And you have to go back to the back of the book again to Revelation 11, where the verse said, the seventh angel sounded his trumpet and there were loud voices in heaven which said, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he will reign forever and ever. God's kingdom reign, remember, is an already and not yet tension between the establishment of God's kingdom through Jesus' first coming and the culmination of God's kingdom on earth at Christ's second coming. It's, it's to the not yet part of this, uh, God's kingdom that the revelation is, is looking forward to. Time when the governments of the world give way to the rule and reign of Christ. At that point, God's kingdom will come on earth as it is in heaven. God's will shall be done perfectly on earth as it is in heaven. So when we pray for God's kingdom reign to come, we are affirming our confidence in the future culmination of God's plan. I mean, at times it seems like life is just this random sequence of events. I mean, why did the drunk driver come across the yellow line and hit that car and not the one right behind it or the one ahead of it? Was it random? Was it an accident of chance? Or life, you know, can seem like a maze with unexpected twists and turns that don't make sense. Why is life leading us in the opposite direction from where we think we need to go? What, why does the door that would seem most to glorify God stay shut? at least to us. And in those times of doubt and uncertainty to pray, your kingdom come, your will be done, is affirming, God, you're in charge, and I'm confident in you. And as you make your plan known to us, we will follow you. And we live in this tension between already and not yet, and so we affirm our confidence that God's culmination of his plan will answer a lot of our not yet questions. I mean, I think a lot of us have questions, and we'd like to ask God when we get to heaven. I mean, there's times life hasn't seemed fair, and so we wonder if God was unfair. So I bet this day is coming where you get to heaven, and God's going to say, okay, you had a question. What is it? What do you want to ask? And we'll go, never mind. Because... <laughs> And not that he would be intimidating us as much as suddenly we're in his presence and, and the thing that really tripped us up or just really made us go, God, you're so unfair, will seem so small and insignificant we realize, no, we didn't think about it right. Or maybe it's a grief over a lost loved one who now we see right there in heaven. And so the waiting will be over and we won't need to ask those questions. But I think God will give us an opportunity. And... I do believe that one day God's kingdom is coming here on earth as it is in heaven. And the kingdoms of this world will bow before the kingdom of our Lord and Christ, Jesus. So until then, we pray, Father, your kingdom come, your will be done. Affirming our confidence in the future culmination of God's plan. Well, listen, God's way is best and God's will always will ultimately prevail. 
Because God's will is a loving will and a heartfelt resolve of the almighty God who seeks to express his love and his grace to the human race and care about his children who are here and eradicate sin and evil. So it's a certain will. It's not an unbending will. And he takes our little pleas and our prayers into account. It's a will that allows for the integrity of our own will, but it isn't in the final moment. It isn't limited by our will. So if you're following the example of Jesus, you surrender your will to the will of the Father. And that's my advice. Then to do that, surrender your will to him and do it sooner rather than later. Do it today because you don't have as long as you think. And this idea that we're going to just live it up here and live by my plan and then at the last minute I'm going to uh, uh, give my life to Christ and slide in on, on kind of on the ticket at the end is, is missing the point. God has a great plan for your life and as you submit yourself you can, can live it, but it's, it's, it's later than you think. I mean, think Jesus lived 30 years and some, a lot of us here have lived twice that. Some people here have lived three times that. Nobody here has lived four times that long. And, and it goes just uh, quick. And fully devoted followers of Christ that need to align their lives with the will of God because time is shorter than you think. I mean, here's how James said it. Come now, you who say today or tomorrow, we'll go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. You don't even know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? You are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. He says, you are a mist. I want to show you just how long and significant that is. Okay, are you ready? Got to, got to get ready because this is your life. Ready? One, two, three, go. <laughs> Want to see it again? <laughs> Can't. You only get one. Huh? Okay, I'll show you your kids. So if you're going to use that moment for Christ, then you need to do it now. Start with it now. Align your life with God's will and God's way and do it sooner rather than later because it's already later than you think. And that's why Jesus said, pray like this. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Shall we pray? Dear Jesus, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your witness, for how you lived your life. We thank you that you died in our place even though you didn't want to go there because you knew the pain and the separation and the loss and the shaming. And yet you were willing to pay that whole price for me, for us. Because we never could have gotten right with God on our own merits. And you set us free from sin. You set us free from the restraints that would hold us back. You, you loved us so much. So I pray that uh, now as we look to say, well, who's, who's smarter, God or me? Who should be in charge of my life, God or me? May we just surrender our will to you. May we give you those impossible problems that we've got to solve and listen for your voice. May we take all those uh, requests of give me this and give me that and, and be still before you and know that you are God. You'll be exalted in the heaven. You'll be exalted on this earth. And we want to be part of that great throng that exalts you in our, with our lips and with our lives. And we thank you for being our Savior and our God and inviting us to follow you. May we truly be fully devoted followers of Christ and know your joy. Amen.